This is CliffCentral.com. Good afternoon and welcome to the Daily Maverick Show. My name is Greg Nicholson. I'm not even sure how to introduce this show because I thought this would never happen. Last week, Zimbabwean President Robert Gabriel Mugabe resigned after 37 years in power. His hand was, of course, forced by the military, and his sacked former deputy president, Emerson, Emerson Mnangagwa, has been inaugurated as his successor. I've got two brilliant guests in studio today to, to discuss these issues with me. Professor David Moore from the University of Johannesburg. Uh, he's spent about 30 years trying to understand Zimbabwean politics, history, and its political economy. He's been writing and commenting on the recent issues that have been going on. Uh, Professor Moore, how are you? I'm fine, thanks, Greg. My second guest today is Dewa Mabinga. He's the South African Director for Human Rights Watch. Dewa has more than 10 years' research and advocacy experience on Zimbabwe, as well as in Southern Africa. Before joining Human Rights Watch, he worked as the Regional Coordinator for Crisis in Zimbabwe Coalition, which was based in Johannesburg. Dewa, thanks for joining us. Oh, great. Thanks for having me, Greg. So, I think we'll just jump straight into it. We've seen many times over the years Mugabe isolate his opponents and those who look like they they had ambitions to succeed him and they had ambitions for, for power. This time, what happened was he, he isolated... He's sort of uh, opposing the opposing faction who supported Mnangagwa. Looked like he sort of wanted to have, have sort of ambitions to succeed the president. But this time, what happened differently? Why, why this time did it lead to a transition in power when, for example, former Deputy President Joyce Manjuru, when she was sort of, sort of isolated by, by the president, nothing seemed to, to happen? What is different this time? I think what could be different is that at 93 years of age, you can't handle these contradictions for much longer. Um, that's my guess. As we watched this uh, drama unfolding, we saw the so-called Generation 40 in cahoots with Grace Mugabe, um, sidelining Munangagwa, persuading Mugabe that uh, Munangagwa should go, so he was fired. He came to where? South Africa, China, England, the Pimpernel, nobody knows. And he went back, keeping constant contact with uh, the generals, Chawenga. But I wasn't so surprised, actually, because this has been going on since at least the mid-1970s, when Robert Mugabe managed to climb up to the top in the wake of the assassination of Herbert Chitepo in 1975, in the wake of a Nauri rebellion. He eliminated a group of young radical um, soldiers in Mozambique, um, and there were two power contests which seemed to him like they might be a coup but they really weren't, had them sidelined and Gokuruhundi sidelined Zapu, squashed them completely with murders of thousands and thousands so this is not so surprising when I mean, you can't do it forever, nobody's immortal um, so at the end of the game the G40 made the gamble in advance of the extraordinary Congress which was slated for December this year, which would have anointed, appointed, elected a new leader, or Mugabe would have stayed in power. So the G40 took their, their chance and blew it. They didn't have guns, they're not organized enough, their leadership is very volatile, and they're out of the picture now. So we see who won. We see Monongagwa winning, who has been at the side of Mugabe since at least the mid-70s. So he knew how to play the game. Oh, do you agree? Is this just one too many roll, rolls of the dice for, for Mugabe and his allies, whereas he was continually isolated his opponents, both within and outside the party, and this time he just took it a step too far? Well, yes, uh, especially in the sense that... Um Mugabe, in his last days uh, in office, was clearly angling to have his wife succeed him. And the theory from those in the Mnangagwa faction uh, that um, he was about to establish a family dynasty and sideline the war veterans and the military had been confirmed. So this is why the action was swift 
when Mnangagwa was fired because it became clear that there was nothing for them and that the relationship that historically they had uh, maintained, as uh, Professor Mohe said from the 70s, had been broken. The last pillar of support for ZANU-PF, the military, was now uh, sidelined and they wanted to reassert that control. And this is why then they moved quickly. Uh, to get rid of uh, those around Mugabe uh, who were working with um, Mugabe's wife, Grace, uh, to have a new leadership that had no direct relationship with the liberation uh, war struggle towards. In this case, there seems to be, in the factions that emerged, emerged in ZANU-PF, there seem to be both generational divides as as well as... I guess that the problems, like, like you said, of who, who has the allies of the military on board. And I think a lot of people outside of Zimbabwe who have been reading about this will read about uh, G40, Generation 40 versus Lacoste in this in this current uh, battle. Can you just take us through, Daryl, we'll start with you. Some of the – in South Africa, obviously, we know that factional battles, they merge and differ and change and allies come in and out and, and backstab each other. First of all, what – are the key differences and between G40 and Lacoste, but particularly how these different factions emerged over time. Where did they come from? Well, uh, what I can say is that uh, if you look closely at uh, Mugabe's style of governance and leadership and how he has maintained his uh, authoritarian rule for 37 years, one key way was to use factions. So... In many ways, he would create them and keep to keep the people apart and at bay so that they don't go for his power. So the emergence of most of these factions had to do with Mugabe himself. He would actually promote them to make sure that there are different groups that do not turn on him but keep uh, at each other's throats. Uh, so before we had um, uh, the G14 uh, come out clearly, uh, there was what was called the Gamatox faction, which was the faction that was aligned to Joyce Mujuru. But Joyce Mujuru was also part of the liberation movement group. Um, so she was then uh, gotten rid of in, in 2014. But she had also been at at, at, at Oz and at Loggerheads with uh, Emerson Mnangagwa. So within the liberation group, there were two uh, clear factions. Uh, one that was led by um, Joyce Mujuru's former husband in general, Solomon Mujuru who was the first general in 1980 after independence, and then the other were aligned to Mnangagwa. So the first open battle was in 2004, when um, Mnangagwa was overlooked, and then uh, Joyce Mjuru was promoted to become deputy president. Uh, so that was the, called, the so-called Cholosho uh, declaration that wanted to push Mnangagwa through, but was stopped by Mugabe himself. But after that, it was, after its decimation, then they retreated to regroup. When they regrouped, that's when the G40 emerged with Jonathan Moyo and others saying they were not, um, they did not have enough faith uh, in Mnangagwa to push through their agenda. So they emerged as a different faction. Uh, then, so there were sort of three factions, the Gamatox JSM Juru faction, uh, the G40 faction, and the, the Lacoste faction. And then after tw- 2014, when Joyce Juru was kicked out and her group from uh, ZANU-PF, then two factions remained. Uh, the G40 faction uh, was looking at the young generation that had nothing to do with the liberation struggle, but wa- was using proximity to Mugabe through the wife, Grace Mugabe, uh, to then influence decisions and to... Uh, sort of, uh, uh, so in effectively take over government because Mugabe was now leaning more towards that faction and away from the Lacoste faction that was led by Mnangagwa up to the point that really, uh, the Lacoste faction was decimated and was pushed out at a political level, civilian level. The, the, the G40 faction had won and then the military intervened and reversed that, that, that position. David, does it look like it's almost hard to believe, but I guess a man staying in power for 37 years must be a political genius, it seems. And is this, was, was, do you sort of agree with, um, um, Dewa that Mugabe successfully played these factions off each other and that's how he was able to stay in power for so long? Yeah, to a great extent, although when you play them off constantly, the project is going to fail. Um, I think it was Trotsky who said you can play good politics, but your economics is going to fail. So we have one consequence is uh, economic collapse. Because at one time, another one of these factions uh, that uh, Robert Mugami made a deal with was the war veterans back in 1997, who were on the streets making fusses at uh, public events, um, heroes days, because 
they had been getting medical pensions from about 95 to about 96. So if you were injured during the war, you could claim a medical pension. Now, of course, you can imagine who's going to be going to claim medical pensions and for what. There were lots of fraudulent claims. The press got a hold of this, and so the war vets were extremely alienated, frustrated. They'd been insulted. So they went against Mugabe for a while. Until September, sometime September 97, they made a deal. You'll give us proper pensions, um, thousands on, on a once-off and 2,000 a month. And that's when the Zimbabwe dollar was worth something. Guaranteed land invasions, they would get 20% of the land invasions. So that was, that was a deal made. It was held in abeyance for quite a while until 2000 when the threat of the MDC, the Movement for Democratic Change, came about. And there was a referendum on a constitution, which Mugabe lost. So you have another dimension coming in there, aside from the factions within ZANU-PF. You had an opposition. At one time, it was the war vets. They were sucked in, made the deal, at a time when ZANU-PF was very angry with Mugabe. Um, trade unions and, and the MDC coming up through the 1990s, and civil society activists, human rights activists like, uh, like Dewa coming up through there. So there's a massive shift in, in, in politics coming in the mid-1990s. But fundamentally, it's, you know, uh, Louis Sixteenth, après moi, la terre, c'est moi, the states, for me, after me, the storms. That's what's happening now. And again, when we speak of the military and the party, we're speaking of a fused entity. And it's also fused with business because this military got into business in a big way. And that's what made the stakes get really, really high after the, especially after the war in the Democratic Republic. Let's, let's continue. Of the Congo, sorry. Let's continue with that. So, David, can you describe to me the military's role in Mugabe's 37 year rule? Uh, how did the close alliance between the military and ZANU-PF emerge? And what role did it play in keeping the man and the party in power? And particularly, I'd like you to expand on what you just mentioned in terms of uh, allegations of looting the DRC of resources, as well as looting uh, the Moranga diamond fields, uh, Zimbabwe's diamond fields. Sure. Well, remember, this was a liberation war in the 1970s, and it was a much more you know, severe, concentrated, real guerrilla war, much more than in the ANC. Um, so in the camps in Zambia, Tanzania, Mozambique, uh, the soldiers and the politicians became pretty much fused. I mean, there were lots of conflicts going on in ZANU-PF, in, 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 in Zambia, and, and also in ZAPU, which, remember, was the, the other uh, nationalist movement led by Joshua Nkomo, which has historic links with the ANC. So, if we look at, at a revolt in 1974, it was a revolt of the soldiers, of the political soldiers, and it was wiped out with enormous violence by the leader, uh, the general in, in charge of, of, of the army, Josiah Tongagara. If we look in, in the mid-1970s, when there was this leadership vacuum after Chitepo was assassinated, we saw a group of young Marxist, radical, intellectual, uh, catters who called themselves political soldiers, ideological soldiers, in the sort of Chinese model, although they were debating all sorts of interesting ideological permutations on, on those issues. That one was, was, was cut off, right? So for a long time, there's been this, this fusion. The, the, the most important generals we're talking about today would be General Constantino Chiwenga. He used to just be Constantine, but he changed his name. Um, something to do with his taste in architecture. And, um, and, and Munagagwa, who was never really, really a fighting soldier, but he was in charge of security intelligence. But he's a lawyer by, by Mugabe's side. So these things go back a long way. When I met, um, a, a former ZANU-PF um, politician who later joined the Movement for Democratic Change, Patrick Kambai, who was the mayor of Gweru. Um, when I met him in, I think, 2004, he told me that the party learned that the gun meant money in the Mozambican War. So there was a huge flood of young refugees coming in to fight in the camps, and they were starving. They had no food. They were getting kwashioka. They were malnutritioned. So the general that Dewa was talking about, general, um, he was then Rex Nongo, made a deal with Samora Michelle. He said, look, can I shoot a few of your elephants? Sure, it'll feed the kids. You have elephants too. But then what did he do? There was no limit. There was no quota. He started cutting off their tusks. 
and making money. And he had access to the bank accounts in London, right? So it started off as early as that. Um, and it, but it, let's push it. Yeah, this is war. This is the, the politics and economics of war. Because when the war in the Democratic Republic came about, the second, uh, the second rebellion, 1998, Zimbabwe went in to support Laurent Kabila. South Africa stayed to support the rebels, Paul Kagame, whatever. Then they went in in a big way for diamonds, but also things like generals, generals, cousins, manufacturing, um, boots and clothing for the soldiers. You make a fortune. You destroy the fiscus, but you make a fortune. So while that war is going on, people are making money, but the fiscus is draining. The IMF says, wait a minute, you guys have promised these, these, these veterans land. You're going to destroy private property and you're spending too much on the war. Uh-uh. We're not going to give you any more loans. You can't even repay the loans. So around the end of 97, the economy starts to nosedive. One day, when the bill was gazetted to take over the land, that was the end of private property. The value of the dollar, Zimbabwean dollar, went down 75%. And, of course, we know what happened in 2008. But also, in the meantime, people are getting rich on trading the dollars for the real dollar. You could make, you know, exponential amounts of money in a period of a few times and then invest that in a new car or start building a house, buying real goods. So these guys were getting very rich then. When that falls apart, in 2009, when there's a government of national unity, which the Movement for Democratic Change was forced to join because they'd been slaughtered in the runoff election in the middle of 2008, so Tabu persuades the people to come and have a government of national unity and drop the Zimbabwean dollar, take on the American dollar. That source of revenue for the money changers the big ones, and that was the NUPF. They were behind that. Um, they were, you know, getting the daily rate set and everything. Although when that fell out of, you, you, you couldn't keep up <laughs> on a daily rate. So that source of revenue dried up. Then you get the diamond mines. And then you get all sorts of Chinese companies, uh, freelancers from all over the world on the border between Mozambique and, and, and Zimbabwe. So you're really getting a free-for-all there until... The military steps in and cleans it up. Let's not have all these little entrepreneurs going around digging up stuff. Let's take it in. So that, 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 it's a bit like Egypt, maybe Egypt 50 years ago, because you know the Egyptian military and business well, and they destroyed the Arab Spring pretty quickly. They, 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 uh, moved it in their direction pretty quickly. We don't have a military which is that entrenched in a, in a generational sense. Um, but um, it's 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 getting there, and it's not going to let go. Dewa, on this, so if we look at on the one side the looting and corruption, which I think behind what we're talking about from the military side at the moment, but obviously it's linked to the political side, and they they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of talk this week about the Gorakal Hundi, um, which saw many many Ndebeles uh, killed in Matabeleland in the 80s. Um, operation and excuse my pronunciation, but uh, Muram Batsvina, mm-hmm. uh, which saw slums violently cleared in 2005, and as well the intelligence services, the military's role in helping Zanapuyev win multiple, well, not necessarily win, but take multiple elections. Is the Zimbabwean state as we know it now essentially defined by both corruption and violence? Uh, absolutely correct, and these are, are related because it's also uh, to do with um, Mugabe's style of leadership that he had established in you know, an intricate system of patronage and violence. So patronage for those that supported him, uh, for the captains in the in the army. Um, Professor Most talked about you know the Democratic Republic of Congo, the military operations there, essentially to uh, to loot. Uh, the president now, Emerson Nangagwe, has been cited by the uh, UN investigative panel uh, as one of the key people who looted, you know, natural resources in the Congo, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So yes, and um, how Mugabe maintained, you know, authority and power when people were disgruntled was through violence. So the Fifth Brigade in the early 80s was used a, a crack army unit that was trained by North Koreans 
was deployed in Matebeleland uh, and committed massive atrocities, killing an estimated 20,000 uh, people, mainly in Debele speaking. Uh, and, uh, you know, also related to that there was no accountability, there was no justice, you know, it was just, you know, swept under the carpet. The same goes for the 2005 Operation Marambachina, the cleaning up of so-called the slums, informal settlements that left... Uh, over 700,000 people homeless without shelter. Again, there was no accountability investigations by the UN and by, the, by others, uh, human rights watch. And, but still, uh, Mugabe refused to, to hold anyone accountable for that. And the military was involved. 2008, two key operations. Uh, one was the, to do with the elections when Mugabe had lost the first round of elections in March. And then they had to go to the second round, uh, of uh, presidential elections, the runoff in June 2008. The military was deployed, extreme violence that was unleashed on the people. Over 200 MDC supporters killed in that violence. No accountability. And in fact, when Mnangagwa was now pushing to Mugabe to say, you need to acknowledge the role of the military, he actually made reference to 2008 and said, remember your excellency, how the army stood by you and campaigned vigorously, you know, violently in 2008 to, to retain this, this victory, which they then uh, claimed. October 2008, as Professor Moore alluded to, a violent military takeover of Maranga Diamond Fields in the east of the country. Uh, for the purpose of corruption also, but you know, the way it was done, it was extreme violence, no accountability, no justice. And these are people who do not, you know, who do not um, observe the rule of law. Uh, a few years back, I sat with uh, some army generals uh, for lunch uh, in Harare, and they said to me, look, we are going to take over as a leadership and we will not be civilian. We are not going to be as civil as Mugabe because we have not gone to school. We will not use the law of human rights. Ours is a law of command and obedience. So what is coming is going to be worse. You know, we loved it off then, but now I see that, you know, things could be worse. You know, the, this military takeover was not, was not bloodless. It was violent. And there were people who have been abducted, who have been put under military detention, who have not been accounted for. So we should not pretend that this was, you know, a cool coup, as some say. No, it was not. Before, before we get to the, I guess the impact and the, the potential outcomes of, of the military's recent intervention. Dewa, can you just t- take me through a little bit about both the socioeconomic challenges in Zimbabwe as well as the system of governance that Mugabe created? So in terms of institutions, the civil service, the day-to-day running of, of governance, how functional is the, the Zimbabwean state and what sort of situation are the majority of, ci- of citizens living in? Well, what is clear is that uh, there is extreme poverty. Over a quarter of the population of Zimbabwe is uh, dependent on food aid. You know, so people are struggling. There is no uh, cash in the banks. There is a cash crisis that continues to this day. People cannot easily access their cash in the banks. Uh, so, did did that bond effort to have bond notes ever come to anything? It did not help. It did not resolve the cash crisis. It has continued. It, it has become worse, uh, and so people are struggling. Uh, that is the reality. You know, over ninety percent of Zimbabweans are unemployed. Those that are in the country, you know, about a quarter of the population is now out of the country. Uh, in South Africa, in in other in the diaspora. So things are not uh, looking good. But this is how Mugabe has been, you know, uh, ruling. Because for the few, you know, there is a huge contrast between the suffering masses and those around ZANU-PF who are making it, who are super rich. You know, uh, if you go on social media, on, on, on WhatsApp, on Instagram, you see, for example, what Mugabe's kids were doing, you know, flashing the wealth, uh, importing vehicles, Rolls Royce and other things, things that are outlandish. But in the midst of, of, of poverty. The which, other, which I think some South Africans here in Johannesburg might know because oh yes. you see them at, at these fancy nightclubs. Not, not me, yeah, yes. fancy nightclubs in Santon. <laughs> Absolutely. So that, that is the kind of life that you see. A, a huge contrast between the super rich and, you know, the people who are su- suffering and trying to, uh, to make ends meet. But Mugabe's own, you know, system of, of, of leadership was such that, you know, they, they would not mind the impact on the ordinary people you know, as long as they were making money. 
So, for example, if you look at the farming versions that began in February 2000, you know, it was a huge impact on the agricultural sector. Outside the framework of the rule of law, property rights were demolished overnight and there was no rule of law. And that led to the collapse of the economy. But for a few, they were benefiting because they, they then got themselves onto those farms, were unable to utilize them. But it was for, for them, it was a huge benefit. That was the patronage system working. The same applies to the diamonds. It was almost official, you know, illicit diamond trade where the government was involved, but the money was channeled into the pockets of individuals rather than, you know, into the fiscus. So at one point, Mugabe, when he was president, actually spoke about having lost over 15 billion US dollars. It was a mind-boggling figure, actually. But, uh, you know, who knows what, what was happening in those diamond fields because no one was accounting for, you know, the revenue there. So the... Potentially, Zimbabwe could have been doing very well, but the systems were not working, deliberately, you know, made not to work. They were not functional. So when it suited them, for example, Mugabe would use the judiciary, uh, when it suited them, but on the large, they would perhaps leave the judiciary alone, but when they wanted political decisions to be made, then they would push to ensure that the judiciary is compromised. Their individuals who are loyal to ZANU-PF would apply the law as it is seen in the eyes of ZANU-PF and not necessarily as it should be applied. Before before we came on air, um, Dan was talking a little bit about he was in Zimbabwe when, when President Robert Mugabe resigned. And he was saying how, I guess, electric and crazy the atmosphere was. In, uh, yes. You're in Harare. Yes. Um, and I've been reading a lot of these articles and you hear all this commentary about the warning signs that this was, Mugabe was forced out of office by the military literally rolling into town, uh, ha- holding him under house arrest, uh, going to, going to key state institutions as well as mm-hmm. Mugabe's allies and either arresting them or holding them under house arrest too, which of course, particularly for South Africans and constitution loving South Africans and all we talk about here is Completely, you know, against the rule of law and, and very, very worrying. But I, and I think this is a common, um, feeling that couldn't help but be a little bit excited and oh, yes. be despite, despite the army coming in and doing these things and despite, uh, all of us knowing that, that this was due to the sacking of Emerson Mnangagwa. Yes. That who was Mugabe's right hand man, that it still feels positive. I want to ask you, David, when you saw this finally sort of playing out what were your first sort of feelings were you were you sort of quietly hopeful like many of us well i i was quickly revising a piece that i'd just written for the conversation.com saying that he was going to be hanging around for a while <laughs> <laughs> but i had half a bottle of champagne i did share a bottle of champagne with a good friend the, um, the funny thing on that is well one you know that's that's sort of a safe bet generally that he'll be hanging around for a while yeah. our my former colleague simon ellison who used to be mm-hmm. our sort of africa mm-hmm. correspondent mm-hmm. Every year he seemed to, in his predictions for the year, he would write, this is, this is Mugabe's last, this is Mugabe's last. And it got to the point where I said, Simon, just don't do that anymore. It's not going to happen. Well, apparently, uh, Munangagwa is thinking of keeping him on as a sort of elder expert. Look, this wasn't a coup against Mugabe. It was a coup against the criminals, the insurgents, the traitors that were in the party. When Chiwenga went on the radio, um, Monday, the Monday night, the date escapes me, but it was two weeks ago, I guess. Um, he had come into the country. This was after Murangago had been thrown out, right? So Chowenga, who was in China, for whatever reasons we don't know, comes back, gets arrested by the police. The police were on the other side. They were on the G40 side, Chiruri. Gets arrested by the police, but his, uh, one, one of the units in the army got advance notice and, and they, they, they got Chiwenga out of this mess. Chiwenga, by the way, has a PhD in ethics from the University of KwaZulu Natal. Whether he wrote it or not, we don't know, but it's there and you can get it online. It's about the uh, ethics of, um, uh, UN intervention and sovereignty and all of this sort of stuff. I've read a few pages, but it's not that interesting. Um, so, so this, and it was all couched in terms of being an internal party corrective measure. And they were going back over history about how these issues in the 70s I was telling you about were resolved by the military peacefully, amicably. And he says, we want to keep this inside the ZNPF closet. Now, whether that refers to the homophobia that people talk about in Santa Pia, I don't know why it was called the closet, but he said, let's keep it in the closet. The next day, the Tuesday, he went to say to the party, whether it was the Politburo or, or the or the cabinet, I'm not sure, he says, okay, what about it, Mr. Mugabe? No, you are treasonous. That night is when 
the house arrest went on, when the acting director of the CIO was uh, taken out of action and beaten up. So that's when it happened. So that took the initial plan into plan B, right? Now, this is this is what I think is really interesting about this coup, is that it was trying to maintain that boundary between constitutionalism and coercion very, very cleanly. So first they tried to get ZANU-PF itself to reverse its actions of a few weeks ago, which had eliminated all the, the, the crocodile people, Lacoste, and to reverse that in a manner of a day and a half mm. to stack all those bra- those local branches and vote uh, Murangagwa back in. That might have been un- unconstitutional because that's the night when everybody thought Mugabe was going to resign. No, he meanders through this speech, this very sort of Roman Catholic, oh, we must forgive and forget. We've been trying to, to solve these unity problems. He didn't resign. I was kind of falling asleep halfway through that speech. And then I, and then somebody at ENCA said, he hasn't resigned. Oh, he hasn't resigned. <laughs> the next step was... That was one was, of the bizarrest moments of TV. That know. was... The next step was the parliamentary impeachment. Now, the people who put together that constitution in during the, the, the government of national unity, uh, Douglas Monzoara, uh, Paul Manguana, there's a great film on that. It's called The Democrats. Fantastic film. You saw the co-chair of the constitutional committee going all around the country, creating a new constitution, being coerced at times by ZANU-PF militants and, and veterans and so on, but... Anyway, they got the constitution out there. Much of it has not been implemented, uh, integrated into the parliamentary legislative system, but that impeachment rule was there. So they had to, uh, by Tuesday afternoon, they were going to parliament, getting the ZANU-PF m- m- MPs who were against uh, the G40 to, you had to have 50% to, to pass the motion to think about uh, impeachment, MDC people on online with that. Next step is to have a subcommittee of nine people from the Senate and the Parliament. Next, next step to talk about it. Next step is two thirds majority. That I think is what it's one of the key elements that, that got Mugabe thinking this is going to be really embarrassing. Plus, Sadek and the AU. They have it that they don't like coups in their neighborhood. So this, if, if Mugabe hadn't resigned, this would have created a really embarrassing situation for Sadiq because I don't have soldiers to go in really. Standby force, the training center was in Harare. That's about it. You know, it's not in Haberoni. Um, so it would have been really, really awkward. So I would think the message was slowly getting through to Mugabe. He lost. Ah, and don't forget. The streets on Saturday, the Saturday before that Tuesday. This amazing thousands of people in the streets cheering for the end of Mugabe. Now, that might have been organized by the war vets, and it was. I don't know the involvement of civil society, but I think they, some of them, well, I did see a comrade Fatso on TV, the, the comedian who's also really involved in civil society. This is why I'm thinking this is something that we really must focus on. There's been two decades of really hard struggles of Democrats, human rights defenders, the uh, opposition party, all sorts of the trade unions, although they're decimated now, but the people are still there who don't forget. The Munangagwa propagandists or strategists recognize we can't just throw out those, those, or that legitimacy from the streets. So they brought it on on Saturday. The students at the university on Monday were demanding that Grace Mugabe's fake PhD be withdrawn. They were demanding the end of examinations. Well, you know, you can go for the whole gamut if you're going. And uh, they didn't demand free fees must fall. Uh, And they were demanding the resignation of their vice chancellor because he had been having special classes for the G40. Almost immediately, the military came in and said, hey, cool it, go back to school, we want discipline here. So that showed some of those contradictions between democratic forces, which aren't going to lie down. I mean, you're hearing people openly all over, going back through the history, going back through the close, the continuities in this coup. People aren't shutting up about this. They're not going to be cowed. So as we move on to the next phase, what's next? Okay. There's no money. 
uh, Martin Rupee a couple of a week or so ago was saying they couldn't have paid the soldiers for another month. That means you've got to have the donors, the UNDP come in, or somebody's going to have to pay the soldiers and get that economy moving. I am reminded of the days when Mobutu took over from Lumumba. Who paid the Congolese army when they revolted because they had no money? The Americans came in and they got Mobutu to pay them. So there's this, you know, what is this new regime going to have to do to satisfy the people who are going to be providing this money in terms of civil liberties? Do we have a transitional government instead of just moving into an election very quickly, which everybody knows the NPF is going to win? Um, what kind of fail-safe mechanisms do the progressive elements in international in the international community have to play with? They have the sweeteners, they have the money. However, so does China. So, Monongagua and his cohorts could say, forget about it, this, you guys from the states, well the states, they don't even know where Africa is um, we can bring in the Chinese to subsidize and remember, it's not just big farmers who got this land, that was, it was 150,000 peasant families who have got land but they don't have very good infrastructure, they don't have the supports that any, any small farmer needs um, so are there plans to get that productivity in the farming area up. There are, there's been a lot of talk about compensation for the white farmers who were kicked off. There's been plans for a long time. People all over the place getting, raising money and so on. So for, I think I heard the figure, 60 billion rams or something. Just you ju- can compensate ju- and that will let, let, let people be happy for a moment. Just before we get there, um, there were, I want to know from you, uh, being on the streets in, in Zimbabwe at the time, did you feel that it was a new dawn of democracy or it's going to be more of the same? Like David mentioned, the, the military has already intervened in a student protest uh, at, at a university there and, and told them basically not to protest. Mm. That doesn't sound too democratic to me. Well, yes, uh, mixed feelings uh, on, on the ground. The, the first and I think the most sort of powerful and overpowering emotion was that this is it. Mugabe is gone. 37 years of authoritarian rule. We do not have Mugabe anymore. So this is worth celebrating uh, in the moment. But also, uh, a, a new kind of fear, uncertainty and uneasiness about the military to say, okay, so what does the future hold? The military has intervened in the politics. Uh, they came, they claim it's constitutional, but is it? They claim it's legal, but is it? Uh, what will happen in the future? What kind of, um, will they step back and go back to the barracks? Or is this now open military rule in Zimbabwe? And that kind of uneasiness persists. Uh, because now you saw that um, Nangagwa, when he was sworn in on uh, Friday, November 24, he was very quick uh, to have a legal process back up that that president to say, according to the law, the high court has said it was legal for this kind of intervention. So it's it's quite worrying uh, what's happening now because if it is constitutional and legal for the military to do what it did, what will stop them from doing it again when we go to elections and then there is a, a candidate from the opposition that they think it does not have the credentials in terms of liberation struggle to lead the country? They will intervene and claim that it was in terms of section. 212 of the constitution which says the military should uphold the sovereignty and national security interests of Zimbabwe which is what they used to justify this military coup what do we know about president um, president Emerson Mnangagwa uh, we he's constantly been in the last week or so been linked back to the Matabeleland uh, massacres where at the mm-hmm. time I think he was leader of the CIO the intelligence organization uh, or he was the minister responsible minister for of that. State, yes. That's right. Yes. And but what else do we know about his his tenure in in office as one of one of Mugabe's allies? And crucially, what do we know about the allies he has surrounding him, surrounded himself with? Well, uh, Nangagwa has been Mugabe's right hand man for the last forty years. He started off as a special assistant to Mugabe uh, during the the war, as a, effectively a personal bodyguard responsible for security for Mugabe, um, and then he moved on to being uh, in the early eighties the Minister of State uh, responsible for security and the Central Intelligence Organization in the Prime Minister's office. Then Mugabe between nineteen eighty and nineteen eighty seven, so he was uh, Mugabe's chief security advisor. 
uh, and closely involved in what happened with in, with the Gukurawundi. In fact, he actually justified that uh, in, in in a number of rallies in 1983, where he was saying that really uh, the military involvement intervention was necessary. It came as like a wildfire uh, it, to burn up the dissidents in Matebeleland together with their supporters. So we know where he stood during that time. In 2008, Mnangagwa chaired what was uh, what is called the Joint Operations Command, which brought together the security forces uh, for the elections, the, the electoral runoff. He was the one who was at the, at the helm of it. And when Mugabe announced uh, that he he he, he was he, he was um, president and he was going forward at State House um, in June, it was him and Mnangagwa, just the two of them. No one else was there. There was no other minister. There was just the two Mnangagwa and Mugabe. So that shows you that he was closely involved in what was happening in terms of the military, the deals. He was also at the helm of what was happening in the Diamond Fields in Marange, uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the looting of of, of resources by his military he was also involved he is closely involved in um the ZANU-PF business empire for a long time he was the uh, secretary for finance in ZANU-PF and he was in charge of of, of, of that empire uh, which makes him uh, in some circles he's been referred to as the richest man in Zimbabwe. Uh, the other time I think three years back when I was uh, traveling in Lusaka in Zambia uh, my taxi driver told me, I asked him who is the richest man in Zambia and he said, Emerson Mnangagwa of Zimbabwe is the richest man in Zambia and I was taken aback but you know he has got vast, you know business interest in Zambia as well, in the construction industry and, and in other places. So he is a businessman. He is focused on business and I think his main focus will be to say, how do I get Zimbabwe working again so that they can make money, but not necessarily how do we improve on the rights, civil rights uh, front. So he will take the Chinese model, I believe, or if you look at Africa, what's happening in Rwanda or in Ethiopia, where there is not so much about democracy or human rights and liberties, but there is a focus on development without the, the basic rights. That's interesting. David, do you agree that uh, Mnangagwa might implement sort of a Rwandan model that, I guess, champions development over over human rights? Yeah. And, uh, and Rwanda. Also, also with, an, uh, I think, ZANU-PF's uh, conference or congress is coming up in December, and then we have an election uh, set for 2018. Mm. Could there we see a real crackdown, especially considering his history, on on opposition parties, on activists? Well, we could. I think if the election went straight ahead, it would be pretty much a clear run for ZANU-PF without being too violent because uh, the opposition's in, in bad shape. On the Rwanda-Ethiopia uh, similarities, I somehow don't see the capitalism that is... Uh, exemplified by this uh, elite in Zimbabwe as a constructive capitalist class. It's consumerist, it spends money, it, it, it is resource-based, you know, it's the, uh, the resource curse is certainly accentuated by this, this gang. The guy who announced the coup, Moyo, Lieutenant Colonel Moyo on TV, he uh, was involved in this company, Ozleg, which was one of these funny uh, Congolese, Zimbabwean, English companies floated on one of these uh, half, half, uh, half-assed stock exchanges in London. Um, so it's tight. But, Dewa, have you seen Munangagwa's birth certificate? <laughs> No, but I know that there are contradictions and yeah. People don't know how old he is. Mm, that's true. And that's probably because he, he was in one of the first, uh, forays, one of the most first guerrilla forays into Zimbabwe from Zambia in 1964, 66, something like that. That's where, that's one origin of the name the crocodile because they were called the crocodile gang. The other, uh, dimension which has, uh, come about over time is the sneaky guy, you know. Um, so there's a lot of suspicion in the country that he's not as young as he as he pretends because he got out of being hanged he was caught on this excursion and you could get out of being hanged if you were a juvenile under a, a, a minor and so he was released either before the 10 years or the 10 years as 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 a juvenile and with his life so there's a lot of suspicion that he made a deal with the uh, with the Rhodesians, that hangs over him, and I think that's been one main thing. You know, these things hang over you for a long time uh, in your life as you in the guerrilla camps. Nobody really 
believes you are what you are your 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 entrance to power is this weird relationship with Mugabe he uses his lawyerly skills um so you got that hanging over you and you're you're going to be suspicious all the time so people i know who have met him say no no we just don't want to be close to this guy um However, let us be positive. <laughs> we this this was perhaps the cleanest coup in Africa's history. The highest estimate I've heard from people in Harare is that twenty people were killed, not just the one Israeli security guard who was trying to protect Ignatius Chombo um, um, from from uh, uh, detention. Um, so there could be more. And in the rural areas, you know, the journalists aren't going out to the rural areas. I hear from people who have uh, friends and family in the rural areas that is getting kind of kind of rough in there. We in, also in terms in, of in, in terms of violence and threats and 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 against who against people who might be seen as not um, supporting. Uh, uh, the crocodile. And some of the, you know, one hears stories about some of the family farms, some of the Mugabe family farms being burnt and, and so on. So it's, it's, it's hard to put a clamp. I think as hard as the leaders of this coup might be trying to, you know, put a friendly face on it. Um, it's, it's always hard to, to put a clamp on those things. There's also a dimension which isn't talked about in Zimbabwean politics as much as it is, is in, for example, in Kenya, which is the ethnic dimension. So there is an ethnic dimension to this, uh, to these faction fights. Um, Karanga, uh, which is, uh, Munangagwa side and the Zazurus, which were the Mugabe side. Um, but, you know, these, these, these divisions are very fluid. They, uh, come into play at different times. Um, and, um, mean, meanwhile, the, the other, uh, um, sort of allies of Munangagwa are largely in the military, but we'll see when the cabinet is, is, uh, is formed soon. I, maybe it has already. There, certainly all I've seen is fake news stuff going around yeah, on the WhatsApp. Um, but the, I think the, Clearest indication came in the uh, SAFM news this morning that Chinamasa has been appointed mm-hmm. as finance minister. Is that correct? Acting, acting, a- act, yeah, acting, acting. Because that's something you got to do really quickly. And foreign affairs, I didn't hear the name. So Chinamasa has been pretty kind of neutral in these faction fights, and he has been trying for a number of years to push the kind of IMF World Bank recovery agenda. On the the party, but of course uh, didn't have enough credibility. He was pushed out by the G40 group. Now has come back in. So there's some indications that there are more economic liberals coming back into the fold. Hard to say. We were running out of time, but though I just want to throw something at you very quickly. So we've seen the former finance minister Ignatius Chombo, as well as ZANU-PF Youth League leader Kudzna uh, uh, Chabanga. Have both been arrested. They both supported Grace Mugabe's faction. Yeah. Um, I think is it Jonathan uh, Moyo? Is he? He's sort of under the, the police. Are, they're, they're trying to track him down. Yeah. There's a lot of talk about what will happen in terms of justice or, or consequences for Mugabe's closest allies, or, or perhaps Grace's closest allies, um, uh, from now on, as well as the Mugabe family. First of all, do you see any any sort of consequences? Any sort of Charges any sort of attempts at justice being being leveled at Mugabe himself or his family, and then very quickly, what about Grace and her key allies as well as Mugabe's key allies? Will they have to face re- repercussions for what they've done either recently or in the past? I think deals have been made already to protect Mugabe and his family, primarily because um, whatever charges may be leveled against Mugabe would equally apply to people like Nangagwa. They are also complicit. So um, this will just be for sure. You know, a number of Grace Mugabe's allies, uh, as you have said, Chombo, uh, Professor Moyo Kasukwere, would be handed down just to uh, be humiliated and embarrassed, but not necessarily for justice. This is a selective justice at, at, at best. It's not, uh, it's not like there is an application of the rule of law. Mnangagwa himself is surrounded by some of the most corrupt uh, individuals that you, you can think of when you talk of um, what's happening in Zimbabwe. Obet Mpofu was the minister of of, uh, of mining in, responsible for the for the diamonds when there was that massive looting of diamonds, uh, the $15 billion that disappeared. So we are unlikely to have a proper thorough cleanup in terms of um, 
an anti-corruption drive. What we are going to see is just a factional battle uh, to uh, subjugate those that have been uh, defeated in this factional war, and not necessarily genuine, uh, you know, uh, fight to clean up Zimbabwe because a genuine fight to clean up and to have justice. It means that you are effectively going for the entire system that includes Mnangagwa and those that are around him. And to finish up, uh, Prof, one of the things I've been reading about that seems absolutely crucial if Zimbabwe is to move to some sort of more people-centered democracy is electoral reforms. Can you take me through some of the key steps that need to be implemented for the 2018 elections to be, you know, sort of towards free and fair? Well, the 2013 election, which wasn't nearly as violent as the 2008 election, was marred by a number of factors, predominant among which is the military control of the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission. I think Mudede, he's getting pretty old as well, but he's not 93, um, will still manage that. In 2013, there's a lot of discussion ongoing still about a million extra votes which were produced. Nobody's ever tracked them down. The voters' roll was never published until the day before the election, and they wouldn't release it electronically. So if you wanted to ask for the voters' roll, you'd have to get a massive truck full of three tons of paper. Um, the uh, gerrymandering, the... Uh, I uh, Oh, and registration now is a new dimension. They're doing this um, fingerprint... Uh, electronic the biometric. registration biometrics that's yeah. the word mm-hmm. and there's a lot of controversy about how effective that is and there are there are problems with registration so at the moment so so what mm. if we're to enact perhaps let's say three key electoral reforms what must they be do we start with the voters role or registrations the most important is ironic actually because the most important electoral reform is to remove the military from involvement in electoral affairs because the military is embedded. It oh controls ZAC, the electoral commission. So that's the biggest security sector reform is the biggest reform for elections because they have been so much involved in making sure that we have stays in power. Then of course a clean voters role, this biometric registration. But most importantly... Is the biometric registration aimed at cleaning up the voters role? And it is, is that- it's starting out fresh, yes. But what we need is to have a Zimbabwe electoral commission that is independent and autonomous and is not controlled by ZANU-PF. The current Zimbabwe electoral commission is not independent cannot deliver a free and fair election are there laws in place or processes to that, that are perhaps changing or regulations changing on appointing leaders of um of of the electoral commission that that could lead it to be more independent no no, no. They, as far as um, things are stand today the current Zimbabwe electoral commission which is not independent is the one that looks uh, is set to preside over the coming elections and that is a huge huge worry a huge concern just Finally, very quickly, uh, from both of you, will there be any international pressure for some of these reforms to be enacted when we've only got about 30 seconds each? What sort of role international players play in here? I think the international community has been angling for a government, government of transitional, a transitional government of national unity, uh, for a while, and they might be losing that battle. Yes, and uh, uh, my fear is that there the, the might be a, a desire amongst the international community actors to give Mnangagwa the benefit of the doubt, to give him space, and not to pressure him to uh, put in the necessary reforms. So this could be a lost opportunity. It's a golden opportunity if they have the, the sense to push uh, for reforms. That's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to The Daily Maverick Show with myself, Greg Nicholson. Thank you to my guests, uh, Professor David Moore from the University of Johannesburg, as well as Dewa Mabinga, uh, the South Africa Director for Human Rights Watch. Thank we you. hope you'll join us next week, and please uh, share the podcast far and wide. This is CliffCentral.com.